This is episode 477 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. When we look at the times in which we live, no question seems more important than this. Where are we in prophetic history? And what is going to happen next? What is next on the prophetic calendar? I mean, where are we in regards to Matthew 24 or Daniel 9 or the book of Revelation? Where are we right now as a nation and as a people and as the church in the continuum of prophetic history? And the answer to that question will either fill you with peace or dread, depending on your relationship with the Lord. If you long for his return, then the signs of his coming provide great encouragement. But if you're trying to live your best life now, then his return and judgment should keep you up at night. And what about our own country? Where does the United States fit into all of this end-time stuff? Where are we as a nation in prophetic history? As you can see, these are vital questions that need to be answered as we see the day of his return approaching. So let's take a look at this together to determine exactly where we are in prophetic history and what we can expect next as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Last week, we talked a little bit about where we are in prophetic history, and I wanted to, I told you last week that I'm not going to be able to tell you last week, but I will today to give you an idea scripturally of where we fit in this continuum of the end times. As you know, you have the rapture that is coming, and then sometime after the rapture, you have the emergence of the Antichrist. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. The Antichrist will make a seven-year peace treaty, which is the 70th week of Daniel with Israel. Uh, in the midst of that peace treaty, and by the way, that seven-year peace treaty is what we call the tribulation. At the midpoint of that, the Jewish temple will be built in Jerusalem. He will actually sit down on the Bema seat in the Holy of Holies and demand to be worshipped as God, known as the abomination of desolation. From that point on is the most documented time in biblical history. It talks about it being three and a half years. It talks about it being time and times and half time, which is three and a half years. It talks about 42 months. It talks about 1,260 days. That is known as the Great Tribulation. That is when God's wrath is poured out. And luckily for you and I, for those of you who know him, we won't be here when that happens. But there are events that take place that are leading up to the rapture of the church, to a one-world government, to a obviously cashless society where you'll have to have the mark of the beast in order to buy, buy or sell, to this great apostasy that's supposed to take place so that people who should know better will throw their allegiance to the Antichrist and follow him rabidly even to the point of turning in friends and family and children and parents. It is an extremely difficult time. And so when we look at the timeline of the end, there's various key segments of scriptures that we're going to be looking at. I'm just going to give you a quick overview right now. The first one is in Daniel chapter 2. Now let me, let me explain to you what the Lord does. It's really amazing. He tells us what the history of mankind will be from a, a very 
macro kind of level. In other words, he just gives us these, these various points here. This is how I'm going to lay it out for you. And then all of a sudden he begins to zero in on Israel and then zero in on the church and then tell us almost like a blueprint exactly what the end times are like. Daniel chapter 2 is this overall large picture. If you remember, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Nobody can interpret the dream. Daniel comes and tells him what the dream is and interprets the dream. And in his dream, he saw this, this great statue, this, this huge man that was made of these certain metal types, except for his feet, which were made of metal and of clay. And Daniel interpreted that as basically the major histories and kingdoms of the world. Babylon, you are the head of gold. After you will come the Medes and Persians. After them will be Greece. And then the most terrifying will be the legs and the feet, which is Rome. You have two legs. And at the feet of this statue, of course, you have iron mixed with clay to make it somewhat brittle. And then this stone, not cut from hands, you remember the story, smashes this statue on the feet and it crumbles down. And then that stone grows to be larger than anything. And so there is the history of mankind. And we know, of course, that you had the Roman Empire, which divided up into two legs, which is Eastern and Western. We find out in Revelation, we're talking about 10 kings and 10 crowns. And, and when it just focuses the end time of this rock back during the time of the Roman Empire. Not Roman Empire I, which ended about 1200, but Roman Empire II, which is emerging as we speak. Then the Lord gives Daniel a dream in Daniel chapter, or, uh, Daniel chapter 9, a vision. I do want you to turn to that. It is the most amazing passage for me in all of the Old Testament. And what the Lord tells Daniel is, I, I've told you the history with Nebuchadnezzar's dream of all mankind. Now I want to tell you the history of your people, and not only your people, but also of Jerusalem. And he begins that in verse number 27, or 24. Seventy weeks, 70 sets of seven years are determined for your people and your holy city. It's not about Rome, not about Babylon, not about the Medes and Persians or the Greeks or Alexander the Great or America or England or Russia, not about any of those things. It's about the Jews and about Jerusalem. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and your holy city to finish the transgressions, to make an end of sins, that hasn't happened yet, to make a reconciliation of iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, that hasn't happened yet, to seal up prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Okay, I need to know when those 70 weeks begin. When is the beginning, and when are they going to end? Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, or Messiah the King, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. There are 69 of these seven weeks, which has a beginning and an end. The beginning, of course, is when the command went out to restore Jerusalem, which took place on March 14th, 445 B.C. with Artaxerxes. You can look that up uh, in the book of Ezra yourself. So that's the beginning. Until some end time, there's going to be 69 weeks. And the end time, of course, took place... April 6, 32 AD, when the Lord Jesus Christ entered in on his triumphal entry. It is the only time he allowed himself to be declared king. He even said, if these children don't cry out, the stones themselves will cry out my kingship. And then he held them accountable because they didn't recognize the day of his visitation. We've gone through the math. 
176,880 days, according to the Jewish calendar, fulfilled to the very day. And yet there's one week left. And that last week, of course, is known as the tribulation period. One thing that Daniel did not see, like if you go to you know, the, the mountains and you see this mountain and behind it is another mountain and then another mountain, you have no idea how far those mountains are, are the valleys between them. And so Daniel sees this week and this week and that week, but was able to see what we know now as the church age, which was a mystery in the, on the Old Testament, it was a mystery to Daniel. We are so blessed to be part of that. And then in Ezekiel, go ahead and turn to that if you would. In Ezekiel, you have some very strange prophecies that it's hard to fit them into the end-time eschatology. Does some of this happen prior to the, the uh, rapture or after the rapture or between the rapture and the tribulation or during the first period of the tribula- tribulation? In the In Ezekiel chapter 37, you've got this valley of dry bones, which is the whole house of Israel. Prophesy over these bones, Ezekiel. There's just nothing. There's just dust. There's just these bones. And all of a sudden, this wind blows and life comes into them. And and they begin to, to stand on their own and rattle together. And they turn into this incredible army. What does this mean? It means that at some point in time, God says he will bring his people back to their land. And if you will study commentaries written during the Philadelphia church age, Matthew Henry, or even the pulpit commentaries, when they're interpreting Ezekiel chapter 37, they could not conceive in their mind this could ever be fulfilled literally. Oh, it's a spiritual uh, reunification of Israel. Oh, it's something other than what it really says. And you and I know that 70-something years ago, a miracle took place where Israel, after 2,000 years, the only nation that ever went into exile, came back into their own land, and all of, it seems like, political intrigue right now was always focused on the Middle East, fulfilled perfectly. And then we have Ezekiel chapter 38 and chapter 39, where we have this coalition of nations that come, Gog from Magog, and they come down and they try to attack Israel. And and again, there's questions about when does that take place? Does it take place before the rapture? Does it take place between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation period? Does it take place after the tribulation period and and, are the beginning of the tribulation? And God comes and destroys these great armies. It's an amazing passage, so much so that it it talks about almost nuclear warfare, that there are these bones that have laid out in this field, and they burn the armaments for seven years, and and they have these people that go through the field, and when they see these bones, they mark them so nobody can touch them. And this is in in chapter uh, 39. And then others come and bury those bones. You can almost see them in white suits, and it's, it's amazing what happens. And it's in these chapters that there are some cryptic, comments that could be interpreted as the United States. And so when we're looking at we're looking at prophetic scriptures, we have this overall Daniel chapter 2 picture of all world governments. We know that in the end, when Christ comes and sets up his kingdom, it will be with some sort of revived Roman Empire, not as strong as it was originally, because it's made with clay and with iron. And it has two feet and it has ten toes. Then we find out Israel, of course, will last these 70 years. 69 were fulfilled to the very day of the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. And so we know the 70 one will be filled just that exactly. 
We see this war coming of, uh, with Gog and this confederation of Russian nations and Turkey. And matter of fact, most of the nations that are listed in Ezekiel 38 are Muslim right now that are coming against, will come against Israel. God will destroy them. And then Jesus gives us this blueprint in Matthew chapter 24. And as he's talking to the church, and he's talking, this is exactly what you can expect. These are the things that are going to take place. He's talking to the Jews that still live in Jerusalem at that time, but talking about us too. And he talks about the things that will happen prior to the tribulation period, what it will be like during the tribulation period. If you're a Jew in Jerusalem and you see the abomination of desolation, what you're supposed to do. I mean, he lays out for us just very clear this very detailed picture of what it is like. Our question is, where do we, where do we fit? What, what signs do we look for? In other words, we've talked over the last couple of weeks, the Lord chastised the Pharisees for seeking a sign, and then he gave them a sign. It's a sign of Jonah. Well, can you explain that to us? No. No, that's a sign you already know. You've all studied that. You've memorized that. You know this, the story of Jonah. If you want to know a sign, go back and look because it's already been given. You just have to have the eyes to see. And so as we look at end times, where we fit in right now, there's a couple signs that theologians and those that study prophecy have been telling us for years that we need to look for these converging signs that we talked about last week, these beginning of birth pains, that when you see all these things coming together, know that he is standing right at the door. One of those is the regathering of the Jewish people to their land. Prior to May 14, 1948, everything, it, it couldn't happen because we had to have them come back into their land, and they did. And they've been involved in five different wars. And every time they've been involved in a war, they have achieved success at that and even taken more land. And then all of a sudden now it seems like, you know, there's these peace treaties that are being made or these normalizations of relationships with Israel, with, with some of the Muslims, but the Muslims nations that surround Israel can't stand that. And again, there's a focus again on Israel. Have to have Israel be gathered into the land. Check. Number one, it's done. Number two, Jesus or Paul says it will be a great apostasy that takes place among the church. I cannot tell you how bad it is right now. It is phenomenal. And again, I know that I belong to different groups than you are, and I'm talking to pastors and guys that pastor churches and write books and stuff of that nature. And there's this, this desire to move totally away from anything that even looks biblical right now, based on what we feel. Again, like I shared with you before, pro-life evangelicals for Biden. It's really pro-life evangelicals for a Democratic candidate who wants to legalize infanticide. Can you explain that to me? You can't, but this is the new movement that's taking place right now. There's an amazing apostasy that's going to take place in the church, and if we're not careful Jesus says the deception would be so great that if it were possible, even the elect who God is holding on to would be swept away in it. 
have to have this coming Middle East peace treaty. Of course, that is initiated by the Antichrist. That begins the, the, the tribulation period. But we can see rumblings of that now, normalizations of relationships with Muslim nations who are far off from Israel right now, and, and it just kind of is moving in that direction. We have this reuniting of the Roman Empire. People thought it was the common market, and then people thought it was the EU, but we're beginning this, our NATO, but we're beginning to see the nations beginning to coalesce together. But then the question, of course, is, it is, the, is it the Western Roman Empire that we're familiar with, Britain, Germany, France, or is it the Eastern Roman Empire, which we're not so familiar with, like Turkey, and some of those nations? And then... Um, but we'll talk about that in time to come. And then you find this proliferation of globalism. One world government, one currency, one person that handles all the finances, one organization who says these are the mandates for everybody worldwide in order to stop a pandemic. You have all of this beginning to push us in all this area. These are the signs that we look for for the coming of Christ because some of these signs won't have taken place when the rapture takes place, but it will by the time Jesus comes. So where are we? Where do we fit in as a nation? Where is the United States in the end times? First of all, is it in Scripture? I will not go into this today. I have shared um, it with you before, where um, in Ezekiel chapter 38 verse number 13, it talks about all these various nations that when Israel is being attacked by this Gog from Magog coalition coming from the remotest area of the north, which happens to be Russia, through Turkey, coming down and attacking them for spoils, there's a group of nations that sit back and watch. And they say, oh, don't do that, but they do nothing about it. Uh, uh, verse 13 says, she, uh, Sheba, which is Saudi Arabia, Dedan, the merchants from Tarshish, of course, which is Great Britain, and all their young lions. And it is interpreted by many scholars, I happen to believe it myself, that this is a reference to the United States. The crest or the seal of Great Britain, of course, is the lions, we're an offspring of that, and so that could reference the United States. We also see in Ezekiel chapter 39 where it says that I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in security on the coastlands that they shall know that I am the Lord. And again, there are some scholars who believe that the fire that comes, maybe some nuclear exchange where God wipes out Russia and this confederation that comes from the north and also a nation that lives in security surrounded by coastlands. And for years, decades, people have always pointed to the fact that that may be the United States. But that won't happen to us because we, we have to play this big part in end times because we're America. We're narcissistic. We think it's all about us. Really. So um, are we one of the nations that's included in the list of Gentile nations that reject God at the end times? And you could look at those verses yourself, where this nation does that and these nations, and it just refers to this group of Gentile nations. Or are we a little bit different than that? Are we, are we more spiritual? Are we more godly? Or do, or do we still are the greatest producer of filth and porn worldwide? I and mean, that is our greatest export. Do you realize that? Or are we one of the nations 
that is referred to in Psalm chapter 2. If you remember that psalm. There's this conversation that takes place among the Godhead. And here's how it begins. Why do the nations rage? The Gentile nations, of which the United States of America may be one of these. Oh, no, that will never happen. We will always support Israel. Well, not if a certain party gets elected. And soon they will. Why do the nations rage and the people of that nation's plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against each other? No, against the Lord and against his anointed, against God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And what they say is, let us, the nations, break there. That's a plurality here. The Godhead bonds and pieces and cast away their cords for us. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. We don't want to follow any rules. We want to make decisions and follow them ourselves. Everybody does what is right in their own mind. And if you follow the rest of this, Verse 4 says, he who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord shall hold them in derision or ridicule. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath, and he shall, in, in, in his great distress and deep displeasure, he will say, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion, and yet you have rejected it. Are we part of the nations in Psalm chapter 2? No, we can't be because we're a godly nation that follows after Christ, right? No, it's not the nation. We can't do anything about the nation, but the church, the church, you and I, our own lives, our congregations, or the church in general, we're so holy, we're so righteous, we so live this life of of just abject submission to the Lord, that God will forestall his judgment like he did on Sodom and Gomorrah if you could find just 10 godly men that they couldn't because of us, because of our desire to no longer live in the shadows and no longer live in Laodicea, but instead be in the light as he is in the light. Does that describe the church today? Does that describe us today? Or maybe there'll be some other great revival coming. I hear people preaching about this all the time, that there'll be some incredible revival that'll take place, and a quarter of the people in the nation will get saved, and therefore when the rapture takes place, you know, our nation will be devastated because of that. Maybe. You do believe that there's one last great worldwide revival God has planned. Are you praying for it? Are you actively seeking it? Or do we just rock on? You know, it's just our life. I got our jobs and our houses and things we got to do and kids we got to raise and all the problems that are pressing on us and we forget where we fit in to all of this. Or, as much as any other nation on this planet, are we due for judgment? I mean, we murder kids in their wombs and the church does nothing about it. Nothing about it. We would never, if we were in Nazi Germany, we would never have let them take the Jews and put them in the cattle cars and drive them to the Ravensbrück and Dachau and have those onion or these ovens cooking all the time. We would have never let that happen. Well, we let it happen in the wombs today. And we don't do anything about it. Nothing. Nothing. Our elected officials don't do anything about it. 
Our judges don't do anything about it. And those Christians who take a stand, who actually go out there and, and maybe picket or go out there and, and open up your home to bring some unwed mother to live with you, we look at those people as they're, they're radicals. We don't want to do that kind of stuff. I've got three empty bedrooms in my house, but it's for me. It's not for them. When you look at it this way, it becomes rather sobering. So where are we right now? Where do we fit into this continuum that's going on? Well, in, in Matthew 24, turn if you would, there with me. In Matthew 24, Jesus talks about, and we've talked about this the last couple of weeks, this beginning of sorrows, this beginning of birth pains, this convergence that's taking place where all these things seem to be multiplying in intensity and coming quicker one on top of another. We see this. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus lays out some of the things that we can expect. Deception. Who do you trust? Honestly, who do you trust? Do you trust your kids? Well, not really. They lie to me if they've got, you know, lying's just part of what it is today. What, me? I didn't do that. It's somebody else's fault. Do we trust our spouses? Well, probably Sometimes, but not all the times, because look at the divorce rate we have in our country. And I, I found that couples that get divorced, they get hurt. When they get remarried again, there's still those residual hurts they bring into those relationships, and they still don't trust as much as they did in the first time. If we trusted, things would be different. Do we believe our government? Do we believe our media? Do we believe anybody today? No. It's our job to determine what truth is. But really, it's the Scripture that proclaims the truth. We find wars and rumors of wars. Trump uh, is diagnosed as testing positive for COVID-19, and immediately all our military worldwide went on high alert because you never know what's going to happen. The attacks that are, that are coming are things that could possibly happen right now. We have famines. We have pestilences. We have earthquakes. All of a sudden, there's going to be this possible resurgence now because you know Trump was more pro-business than he was living in fear with the mask. And so the science doesn't, I'm just telling you what he says, science doesn't equate to, to some of the draconian measures. Then he, of course, comes down with it and some of his staff comes down with it. So now the big push is the fact that everybody has to mask up again and we're going to start shutting down the economy again. It's not going away. Read an article I read an article that said, and it's so true. He said, Donald Trump tested positive for corona, uh, the coronavirus, and so will you. Every single one of us at some point in time in the future. You may not have any symptoms. You may not even know about it. It is what it is. Mutating and not going away, but the death rate is not what it, you know, the judges is a pandemic, and we've got all the stuff going on with an election happening, and Supreme Court justice, it's, just, it's crazy, is it not? Absolute chaos. You will find tribulation, persecution, and suffering that will take place on a scale that we can't even imagine. You know, Jesus says there'll be false prophets, and then there'll be this great apostasy, which is what I want to talk about in the time that we have left. The great apostasy. What, um, what we have a tendency of all falling prey to is peer pressure or peer acceptance. In other words, if we all hang around, when I was young, this sounds really terrible. When I was young, I hung around with a group of people who, whose parents dressed them in more expensive clothes than my parents dressed me. In other words, they had a London fog jacket. 
this blue windbreaker London fog jacket. And everybody that was cool had a London fog jacket. They had a Gantt shirt. They had gold-toed socks. And they would just show their, you know, the London fog jacket. If you took your little thing out on the side, it would have a little, you know, and they'd flash it like your card of acceptance, all that kind of stuff. And I wanted to be part of that group. And a London fog jacket back then was 26 bucks when my dad made $11,000 a year. That's big bucks. Wasn't going to happen. We had to go to some of the other stores and get to knockoffs, but you couldn't have the London Fog jackets. And I wanted them more than anything. So much so that one time my mom went to Belks, and while she was shopping for some clothes, there were all the London Fog jackets. I went in there with a razor blade, and I cut the labels out of a London Fog jacket and then sewed it together in my jacket so I could be with my friends and say, see, and they would look at me, that's not a London Fog jacket. Yeah, but I got the label here and all that kind of stuff because we have a tendency of wanting to be accepted by our peers. If our, accepted, if our peers are fired up for the Lord Jesus Christ, they want to go on missionary trips and they want to tell their friends about Jesus, they want to have Bible studies before school, we have a tendency of raising our game up to their level. On the other hand, if our friends get together and all they want to talk about is Games of Thrones or video games that we play or just football games or just stupid stuff that doesn't really matter, we have a tendency of lowering our, lowering our expectations to, to be accepted by the group. And so the attitude of the church today, the overbearing attitude that Jesus says marks the church today is pretty much where we live, and that's our limits. I don't want to go any lower than acceptable, but I don't want to go any higher than acceptable. So somewhere in the middle is where I feel comfortable, where I'm accepted by my peers. For a decade, I've tried to put a metric to that, and it's a scale from 1 to 10. 10 isn't the 10 of the group. 10 is your 10. It's the as close as you've ever been to the Lord. It's whenever you felt his presence more than ever. And the idea is the fact if you were at 10 yesterday and you love him more today, that that now becomes your new 10. And then the new 10, and you keep growing in sanctification. We have this grid here. So how many people are at 10 in the church today? Nobody. Nobody, because that's not acceptable. That's not, doesn't feel comfortable doing that. People look at you kind of funny and expect you to say these and thous and all that. Talk King James all the time. So therefore, anywhere between an eight and a four is acceptable. If you're below a four, people go, well, you need to get your life together. But if you're above an eight, then nobody invites you out to dinner anymore. And so when we ask everybody, what, where are you spiritually on a scale from 1 to 10, the numbers almost always invariable are between an 8 and a 4. Because in a Laodicean, apathetic, narcissistic church age in which we live, that seems acceptable. We will become like the people we hang around. And the Bible says what is happening today is this unbelievable apostasy that changes everything. In the church in Thessalonica, Paul was only there for three weeks. Paul taught them about the end times and the great apostasy and, um, and encouraged them in the word, gave them what we would call graduate level kind of theology because we don't like to deal with those things. We want to talk about our best life now and your personal felt needs. But it was the kind of stuff in three weeks that he reminded them, don't you remember we talked about that when we were there? And the question they had was, when is the day of the Lord coming? Because we've had some people that passed away. 
And, and we're confused because we got this information from somebody telling us that the day of the Lord had already taken place. And so therefore, are we left behind? We don't really understand. We needed more clarity. Because after all, Paul, from the first day you arrived in Thessalonica to the time that you left, there wasn't a Christian in that church that was older than 21 days. It's all Paul stayed. So help us out with this. And he does. Now, brethren... Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the second coming of Christ, and our gathering together to him, the rapture. We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by a spirit or by a word or by a letter, as if from us. There was some counterfeit letter that went back. There was somebody that stood up and said, just say it, the Lord. There was some sort of prophetic utterance that took place. Paul didn't necessarily know. But whatever it was that you're believing that supposedly it came from us, don't be upset about it, saying that the day of Christ has come because it hasn't. Well, well, if it hasn't, can you give me some proof? Sure. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless what? What is the sign? What is one of the signs of it coming? And Paul says the major sign is the falling away comes first. Before the Antichrist can have full reign, even of our religious institutions, the the falling away, the apostasy has to happen first. Once the apostasy happens and we're no longer holding on to biblical Christianity, then the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or is worshipped, the one that sits in the temple of God on the bema seat during the midpoint of the tribulation known as the abomination of desolation, showing himself that he is God. First sign for the rapture as it's preparing the world to receive the Antichrist, is Christians have to stop believing and acting like Christians. They have to follow some sort of separate doctrine, and that doctrine may be nothing more than the flesh. So if that's true, then where are we living right now? What is the condition of the church today, the overriding condition? The condition that sets the boundaries. The conditions that determines your fervency. To move beyond an eight means that people are going to look at you kind of weird. I mean, you're praying all the time, and then I don't understand why you do it. Why won't you, you know, do the stuff that you used to do? Because I don't want to because it affects my spiritual life with Christ. Oh, come on. Don't be judgmental. You don't want to go too low because then people pray for us and talk about it somewhere between an eight and a four. Look what it says. Condition of the church. I'm just going to read five verses to you, and then we're going to quit. 1 Timothy chapter 4. The Spirit explicitly says that, what? In the latter times, the times we're living right now, this is what the church will be like. Some will depart from the faith. That's the great apostasy that he's talking about. Paul talked about it in the church in Thessalonica, and now he's telling Timothy about that. Some will fall from the faith. How will that happen? Will it be a choice that they make? Will, will, will it happen something that they had no control over? What will be the underlying cause of the great apostasy? The giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. In... 
In Second um, Thessalonians, it talks about that that when the Antichrist comes, that those that are still around will be given this strong delusion to believe singular the lie. This doctrines of demons, and the doctrines of demons pretty much say you're in charge. You have a mind. You don't serve anybody. You're not a doulos. You don't have to follow God's word if it's different from a sincerely held conviction. That you're supposed to do your best life now, get everything you want right now, find your happiness and your acceptance and your respect from others now, and never suffer, never pay a penalty, never get hurt, never be persecuted. It's just all about us. In the latter time, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, saying one thing and doing another, so much so that their own conscience is seared with a hot iron. Have you ever had tried to have a discussion with someone who used to hold on to biblical faith but has now decided that they want to be gay? Because, you know, I used to be a heterosexual, and all I saw, we talked about Joshua, Joshua Harris said, all I saw was, was just dark grays. And then when I embraced who I am, who God made me who I am, and now I'm a homosexual, so I've left my ministry, and I've left my wife, and I've hurt my kids. Now I see the world in brilliant color. You ever tried to have a discussion with someone about the biblical truth? They're not interested. Their conscience is seared. They've already made their decision. Don't confuse me with the facts because I don't believe them anymore. And we see this happening all around us in many different issues. Forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to receive with thanksgiving by those of us who believe and know the truth. In the final days, this is what's going to happen. It's happening right now. Second Timothy. Last letter Paul wrote, he begins to tell them, Timothy, the same thing. You need to understand what the end times are going to be like. But know this, when? That in the last days, perilous times will come. Look at this description and tell me if it doesn't describe not only our culture, but also many who profess to be Christians. Men will be lovers of themselves. The big byword now is narcissism. It's all about themselves. They can't see anything beyond themselves. It's like, a, it's like a disease that became to the forefront when everything became about selfies. I'm going to take my pictures. Here's my picture, my picture, my picture. Tell me I'm cute. Tell me I'm cute. Tell me I'm cute. I, I, I feel so sorry for these girls, and sometimes guys do it too. As they feel they're alone, they're at home, nobody's affirmed them, so they're going to take some picture of them with the little duck face and all the... All the, um, all the makeup on in their bathroom, in the mirror or something, so the people will write, oh, you're so beautiful, you're so beautiful, you're so beautiful. Well, thank you, because it's all about me. Taking pictures of me, watching me, like me, be my friend. Lovers themselves, in the West especially, lovers of money. Money, our, our self-worth is defined by money, and we boast about it. We're proud, we're blasphemers. Kids no longer obedient to their parents. Every Disney movie you'll ever watch is the parents are stupid and the kids are smart. And the parents give the kids certain instructions, but they don't know what they're talking about. They're just crazy. And so all of a sudden, the kids go their own way. Follow your heart. 
that's deceitfully wicked above all things. And then finally it turns out so well that the parents come and apologize for being so draconian. Unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving. Today, more than anything, slanderers. So much so that I'm totally out of control. I just, I just got to tell you how I feel. It just comes out of my mouth, and it's just the way it is. I'm sorry about it, but I'm not going to change. Brutal in some of the things they do. Christians, too. Despisers of good, those eight, nine, or ten. Traitors, turn on you in a heartbeat. Headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You ought to, um, you ought to take a sheet of paper out and do, if you, if you worked for a law firm or a accounting firm or even a counseling firm that you bill by the hour, one thing they make you do is they make you account for the accounting firm I worked at every six minutes. Every hour is divided up into 10 uh, segments of six minutes, and somebody has to get billed for that, so you have to keep track of what uh, clients you were working on or who you talked to. This is the phone call, so I've got to bill them for that and all that kind of stuff. Try doing that with your time during the day and find out how much time you spend pleasing God and how much time you spend pleasing you. Everything's pleasure for me. I like this show. Uh, I'm going to stay up late. I, don't, I can't have time to study my Bible because I did my little 15 minutes today, but I don't mind watching this or a football game or something else at 2 or 3 in the morning that I have to get up and I'm really tired, but I'll never get up and be tired and spend time with God, but I do for things that I want to do. And you'll find that just check your checkbook and the amount of money we spend on the kingdom versus the amount of money we spend on us for pleasure, and you'll be shocked. Well, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not a lover of pleasure rather than a lover of God. Check it out. I did. I was shocked. Because we have a form of godliness, but no power, no dudamas, no life-changing power. And Paul tells to Timothy, run away from people like that. Have nothing to do with people like this. These are believers he's talking about. Because Timothy's pastoring a church. Have nothing to do with people who claim to be believers, but act exactly the opposite because bad company corrupts good character and they will drag you down. For the time will come, he says, chapter 4, when they, this is the church, they, no longer endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires is a seeker of pleasure. And because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they, that's their actions, they will turn their ears away from the truth. And once that happens, something happens to them. It's not their action. Once I turn my ears away from the truth, then I will be turned aside the fables. See the difference? good-sounding, pleasing philosophies that had nothing to do with biblical truth. This is a painful one. This speaks almost of our nation today, where everything is about money and about wealth and the size of our houses and how much money we make and retirements and stuff of that nature. And it talks about a nation and a group of people who defraud others just to be able to make more money. Look what it says here. This is James. Come now, you rich, weep and howl. Why would I weep and howl when I'm rich? 
and I'm wealthy, and I don't need anything, Revelation chapter 3, for your miseries that are coming upon you. Well, what miseries are those? Your riches are corrupted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Matter of fact, you've heaped up treasure in the last day, this treasure of judgment. Indeed, there were the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. The cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. You have lived on earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fatted your heart in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just, and he does not resist you. What do we do, Lord, when we see that happening all around us? Why does it seem like evil people prosper and good people suffer? Therefore, be patient, the Lord says. When? Until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until he receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. And what am I supposed to do when I am being patient? Establish your heart. Because the coming of the Lord is imminent. It's at hand. It is right upon us. This is the condition of the church. I'm going to close by reading to you the letter that Jesus wrote to the church in Laodicea. As I have shared with you, the seven letters lay out for us the history of the church. We are clearly in the Laodicean church age. And the thing that differentiates the Laodicean church age, which the Lord had nothing good to say about from the other church ages, is their feeling that they didn't need anything because they already had it. Do the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning and the creation of God. Okay, God, tell us about the overriding parameters of the church age in which we live. You know, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a three, two, or one, or zero, but I'm not a eight, nine, or ten. I'm somewhere in the middle. So tell me, tell me what I've accepted as okay. I know what you do. I know your works. The word for works here means like works based on employment. It's your duty. I know what you do. And that you're not a nine or ten or eleven or twelve, but you're not a zero, one, or two either. Instead, you're just stuck in the middle, which seems comfortable to us, that you were neither cold nor hot. I wish, I could wish that you were either cold or hot. If you were cold, I could encourage you. If you were hot, I would continue to bless you. But because you're comfortable in the middle, because you were lukewarm, the find is neither cold nor hot, you make me sick. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, I know I, I quote this verse a lot. I know it's distasteful, but it's scary, is it not? Scary. That God could actually have an attitude like this about the church age in which we live, about you and I. Why are we like this? Why would you respond that way, God? What is it about our life that you find so offensive? Because you say, church, I am rich, and we are. I've become wealthy, and we have, and I don't need 
anything. I don't need God to direct me. I don't need God to tell me what I'm doing wrong, to chastise me. I don't need God to to let me bear fruit. I don't need any of that kind of stuff because my whole life is tied up in my self-sufficiently. Sufficiency. So I'm rich. I'm wealthy. I don't need anything. But God says, don't you know that you are truly wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? Now, If we ever took this seriously, this would bring us to a point of confession. Lord, this is who I am. I'm so concerned about things that don't matter. I don't, I'm not part of your life. I haven't even really invited you to be part of my life. I just need you to get me out of jams whenever I get in them. How can I change? What am I supposed to do? How does this, what's the remedy, Lord? It's really simple since you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Since you're poor, I counsel you to buy from me, from me, gold refined in the fire. Riches, they come from me. Why? Then you'll really be rich. If you want to be rich, it's not about what you accumulate that you all have to leave behind. I've been spent the last month just reading the book of Ecclesiastes, trying to study it. I'd never done that before. It's exactly what Solomon says over and over and over again. And since you're naked, you need to be clothed in white garments. Those white garments come from me. It's those wedding garments that he provides. Why? That the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. That your sin would be covered. Since you're blind, you need to anoint your eyes with salve. Why? That you may see what life is truly all about and what it really matters. Life going to be easy? No. No, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. Because as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. He doesn't say, I coddle and I encourage. I think that's amazing. And the reason why is the fact there's nothing to coddle and encourage in the church in Laodicea. If we're going to take this son and turn him into a productive man, it's going to take rebuking and chastening. So don't be dumb about this. Be zealous and repent. Repent and overcome the the fear and the desire of the flesh and everything our culture throws at us. Why? Because Jesus says, I am standing at the door and knocking. The door of the church by definition, and you, by inference. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, our action, I will come into him and have fellowship with him and dine with him and commune with him and him with me. I will abide with him. To him who overcomes, and it is a battle to overcome, to say no to the flesh and the culture and to be different from your friends, even your Christian friends. To him who overcomes, look at the promise here. I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Really? I don't even know what that means. How I, I sit with you on your throne? Yes, as I overcame and sat down on my father's throne. The honor the father gave the son for overcoming is the honor the son wants to give you and me for overcoming. Is this for everybody? No. He has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So where are we right now? We are in the middle of the great apostasy, and it is beginning to get 
worse. I don't know. I won't say middle. We're in the midst of it. I don't know if we're the beginning of it or how bad it's going to get. But there's all these voices out there, all these things that feel good to the flesh, all these things you'll have to overcome that tell you the Christian life is really something different than what the Bible teaches. I mean, if you think about it, you know, he is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, 1 John chapter 1, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. I mean, there's very little margin for error. We live grace, 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 because it lets me sin the way I want to. But if we truly understand who he was, it would drive us into a deeper fervency for him. Living in the great apostasy, listen very carefully, is the most dangerous place to be. Because what you're being convinced is real is not. What you're being convinced is acceptable is not. Just rocking on at a four or five or six or seven, or if you're really spiritual, an eight is a, is, is a lifetime of failure. At one time I was a 10, and I've never even matched what it was like at one time in my life, five years ago, six years ago, 20 years ago, the day after I got saved. I've lived less than what I was in the very beginning for 40 years. That's failure in his eyes. In the church, you're doing just fine. Just come, pay your ticket, get involved in what's going on. Don't kill anybody. You'll be okay. Isn't that crazy? And our place in the next prophetic event, which is the rapture of the church, will be determined by how well you navigate the great apostasy. Well, does that mean a true uh, person who's truly saved can lose their salvation? No. But the apostasy will show you whether you truly are saved. And if salvation is based on the standard that the church gives, all you got to do is make a profession, not looking for fruit, you're really okay, here's a box of tithing envelopes, and here's your Sunday school teacher. If that's what we think salvation is, we've missed everything Christ talked about coming as a king, as a lord. We are not our own. We can't do the things that we want to do. We've been purchased with a price. And for many in the church, it looks pretty bleak. But what about us? How do we respond? What are we supposed to do? I want to close with this. I want you to remember these words of Jesus. Here's what he says. John 9. I must work the works of him who sent me. And by the way, so must you. While it is day, Jesus says, for night is coming when no one can work. There is a season that he's placed us in right now to do the works he's called us to do. And look at the phrase Jesus makes here. As long as I am in the world. That's a time statement. It doesn't mean forever. As long as I am with you, as long as I am in the world, as long as I am right here when he spoke those words in John chapter 9, I am the light of the world. Okay. If I heard him say this, this would bother me. As long as you're in the world, which is right now, you're the light of the world. But the fact that you've added that condition to the statement of being light of the world lets me know that you're not going to be here forever. And he wasn't. So 
when Jesus is no longer in the world, who is the light of the world? You. You. If you remember in John chapter 14, or John chapter 15, the only purpose we have in life as a, as a branch is to bear his fruit. In the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, after we listed the Beatitudes, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And a light in the world cannot be put on a table and hidden under a basket. That's no light at all. Instead, it's removed so everybody can see the light of him. Christ is no longer physically in the world. Instead, his Holy Spirit has inhabited each of us. And our privilege is to be that light in the world. Is it difficult? Absolutely. Will you face trials and tribulation? It's promised in Scripture. Will he have to correct you and chastise you and rebuke you? That's what he says in Revelation chapter 3. But he does it because he loves us. It's a total rearranging of our priorities. When, um, when Roberta was, um, before she got her cancer diagnosis, Roberta had certain things that were important to her. She had a job that was important to her. She had some friends that were important to her. She had a ministry. She was doing some drawing. She couldn't wait to do these kind of things. Her life was just, just tied up in just stuff she was doing. Just like your life is tied up and my life is tied up in stuff that we're doing. And then the doctor said, you have cancer. Wow, what does that mean? It means you're going to have to shave your head. It means you're going to have to have chemo treatments. We're going to do those treatments every 21 days, assuming your body responds well enough, and sometimes they've had to push them off further than that. It's going to be painful. You're going to be sick for a long time. You're going to have absolutely no energy at all. If the cancer treatments work, then you will extend your life. If they don't, you're going to die. We're going to do the very best that we can. And everything in Roberta's life changed. Every decision that she made, everything that she did, every conversation that she had, every good day was such a blessing that she used to take for granted. Because there's this haze, there's this overriding reality that my life has radically changed for something that I had no control over. You and I have got to view the coming of Christ and are giving an account of our life to him and the privilege of having the Holy Spirit live in us is that kind of life-changing event that changes everything that we see, rearranges every one of our priorities. Because life may not be tomorrow as it's been today and yesterday. Amen? Let me pray.